During the 2020 COVID crisis, Jenny Caminada was part of a group of ordinary people who saved lives. Yet none set foot in a hospital and all but one were women. I think there's always something a bit magical when women get together. You know, it might not last, you know, as in the, you know, infighting might eventually sort of happen. But, you know, I see that in my classes too. They're mostly women and you get a bunch of women together and within five minutes people are telling their stories and talking about themselves and... and and I think that was also really important because we weren't able to connect with people in person. But actually, whilst you're making stuff and whilst you're doing stuff and whilst you're creating and helping, your stories will come out. So people became very supportive of each other quite quickly too, which was just incredible. Welcome to Rebel Women. I'm Esther Freeman. Usually I would tell you that this is a podcast about troublemakers, but for our fourth series I'm resetting a little, because the women we're featuring this time were definitely not causing trouble. Some of them may have in previous lives, but in the spring of 2020 they were holding everything together. That spring is probably still quite clear in your minds. Over the winter, we heard news of a virus in Wuhan, China, a place many of us had never heard of, but is now etched in our minds. I had a colleague from Dunblane, who for decades would tell people she was from Stirling because of the reaction her hometown provoked. Older listeners will probably remember the tragic events of 1996. For younger listeners, Dunblane Primary School was the site of a mass shooting which killed 16 children and one teacher, with 15 others injured. For our American listeners, this kind of thing hardly ever happens in Britain, let alone in a sleepy Scottish town. It rocked the nation. With what went down in Wuhan in late 2019, I wonder if people there avoided saying where they're from when travelling out of town. By February, the virus wasn't just in this faraway place. It was in Italy. I remember that half-term going on a day trip with an Italian friend and her children. I asked if she was worried and she pulled a face that was either I don't really want to think about it or I don't really know. Did any of us really know? There was so little information coming from our own government it was difficult to process it all. By the time the children returned to school Italy was in lockdown. I saw another Italian friend on the school run. There were a lot of Italians in our school for some reason. I asked after her family. Well, my grandma doesn't go out much anyway, so I'm not really sure it'll make that much difference, she said. She was smiling, so I smiled back. I wasn't sure what else to do. Then things suddenly got real. Scientists jumped up and down waving their proverbial red flags, and those death rate graphs looked scary. The government dithered. On Columbia Road Flower Market in Hackney, people continued to stroll through the packed streets while photojournalists snapped their pictures to illustrate how crazy we all were. Boris Johnson boasted about shaking hands with people on a Covid ward. If he was attempting to calm things, it failed. People were panic buying and there was an obsession with toilet roll. On the 23rd of March 2020, the country finally went into lockdown. Amongst the chaos of those last few days before lockdown, behind the doomsday headlines and bare supermarket shelves, I noticed something else happening. My WhatsApp groups, normally concerned with the wranglings of the Labour Party, were now filled with chats about mutual aid. There were posts going up on Facebook calling for anyone experiencing sewing to join something called a scrub hub. 
I saw one of the women activists from my last research project zoom past on her bike declaring, can't stop, I'm dropping off donations at the food bank. Something extraordinary was happening and women seemed to be driving it. I've been doing this history game for long enough to know that unless there was a conscious effort otherwise, the story of the COVID pandemic would be dominated by the things that rich white men did. The amazing things unfolding from women in my community would get forgotten. I decided to not let that happen. Since 2022, I've been working with a brilliant team of oral history volunteers to record women's stories from the pandemic. Some would call themselves activists, but others were simply retired tax inspectors or former teachers. All of them stepped up to support their communities in some way. Very few have been formally thanked. So this podcast series will celebrate their stories. They're only a sample of what we've recorded. The rest will be archived at the Bishopsgate Institute in London. And there are so many more out there that we never got time to hear. So to all those nameless women, we salute you. We're starting off the story of Jenny Caminada, who you heard at the top of this show. In March 2020, medical PPE shortages, that's personal protective equipment, meant people with sewing skills were suddenly in high demand. And Jenny had been sewing since she was a little girl. Jenny was born in 1970 in Holland into a family of makers. My maternal grandmother was very crafty and she was always making things. She was always hand sewing and crocheting and just just always pottering around doing stuff. Um, my mum went through a little phase of doing very 70s macrame and, and stuff like that. And um, and so, yeah, I was always around, surrounded by stuff, but I was always intrigued by sewing. So I had a little sewing machine when I was quite young. And I used to make clothes for my dolls and knit things for my Barbies and what have you. So it's been a long-term thing. I kind of stopped-ish for a bit. And then when I was in my early 20s, I went, a, a friend who I lived with suggested doing this free because adult education used to be free then. And we did a free two-year um, fashion and textiles um, access course as an introduction to university degree, So, which was absolutely incredible. And since then, I just haven't stopped really. Eventually, Jenny was able to turn her passion into a career. For over a decade now, she has been making things to sell at craft fairs and fixing things. Then she started running classes to teach others to sew. She's also done a fair bit of community sewing. Yeah, so there's a community centre nearby me called The Mill, which is an old library that was turned, was taken over by local people and turned into, they have an honesty library and they have rooms for yoga classes and they have a big what they call the living room where people can just hang out just like they would have done in the library um and so I did some of the sewing for there I did you know I've made the curtains and the cushion pads and that was a community involvement project so that people would come in and I would show them how to use a machine and we all made the curtains together um and then for a long time on and off I've been involved in a project called dress dress a girl around the world where you make you get together with people and you make really simple dresses for kids that would probably otherwise would always be wearing secondhand stuff and they're they're dresses with big pockets and for a long time it it bothered me that it was just dresses and then they changed it to dress a child so now you can make boys shorts and all that stuff as well but it is really that was a really lovely thing um to have been involved in a national international project that's still going 
Despite her community involvement, it didn't initially occur to Jenny to do anything in lockdown other than try and stay safe. It didn't initially occur to me. I think initially, because I have celiac disease, we were told that we needed to shield. So I spent a few weeks shielding and then realising that actually I don't even get a cold. So I think, you know, it seemed to be maybe slightly exaggerated. But that was my main sort of focus. And also my son was, you know, kind of went to his dad's um, just down the road from here. So there was a lot of sort of personal stuff going on. So initially I didn't really think about it at all. And then I was contacted by this woman, Amy, who said, I live local to you and I'm a fashion designer or costume maker and her work had all fallen away. Um, and she said, you know, my friends in Hackney Wick have set up a uh, scrub hub and I want to do the same here, do you want to help? So, but I can't remember when it was, but it was probably only really a few weeks into the lockdown, if that, that she contacted me. But no, it wasn't my idea, it was hers. <laughs> the first challenge was to source fabrics. Initially, it was donated fabric, but that didn't last long at all. In you know, at the height of it all, we had about seventy-five people sewing for us, and we had a big team of people behind the scenes. So there were several of us spending all our time sourcing fabrics. We set up um, a crowdfunder so people could donate money so we could buy fabric. Um, so we had the cutting studio. We had people, you know, putting together the cut pieces and bundling them up and with size and labels and everything and instructions and sending them out to people and then other people bringing them back and checking for quality and sending them, you know, dealing with the orders. I mean, it was, it was really, we had a press officer, we had everything. It was quite a high, you know, we basically set up a fully functioning company in about three weeks, which was incredible. <laughs> it was really good. The next challenge was getting the scrubs to the people who really needed it. Initially, it was anyone that asked. So... And then once people started knowing about us, more and more people asked, and then we had to become a bit more discerning. So, for example, our local hospital, they, you know, doctors were contacting us, contacting us directly, and we're like, but you're a doctor, you're supposed to have scrubs anyway. And they go, but basically what's happening, that this supply chain has been disrupted, they're not getting to us. And eventually they were getting to the hospital, and we realised that the person that was in charge of delivering, dealing with the scrubs and handing them out, they just chucked them in a massive room and gone, it's a free-for-all. So doctors were spending up to two hours a day going before their shifts, going into this big room trying to find stuff that fitted them. And they thought it's easier to go to us because we'll give them something that does fit. And we, you know, we tried to unpick this with the hospital going, this is not good enough. You're asking women to work for free. You're asking people to donate money so we can sew stuff to give them to you for free when you have hundreds of uniforms, uh, scrubs there. So that's when we kind of went, no, hospitals just, they have their own stuff going on. Initially they didn't, but then they did. I'm like, that's not fair. So, but we did up to a point, you know, people that didn't normally wear scrubs, so, um, you know, occupational therapists and GPs going into people's homes. So those kinds of people we were happy to supply. I know there was other scrub hubs that sold the uniforms, or the scrubs quite cheaply, sort of cost price, but we decided, I mean, we gathered so much money for crowdfunding because some people that you know that was their way of helping so actually we didn't have to charge which was good but yeah no we it was it was quite a direct system so people would just you know order through I can't even remember how it worked there was some online ordering system and then we would make them and send them out so it was also quite a quick turnaround too because that's what happens when you have a fairly small new company <laughs> everything's still quite immediate you know it, things were getting more and more complex towards the end, but um, 
but yeah, we were just giving them to nurses and, like I said, GPs and occupational therapists and health visitors and midwives and anyone that had to go somewhere where they could just whip the scrubs off in their car and get changed very quickly so they didn't have to, you know, scrub themselves down altogether. So. Just as one problem was solved, another appeared. We were running out of fabric. You know, the country was running out of fabric. And there was a whole Facebook page set up by people that were going, right, OK, well, I've just noticed that this company has 3,000 metres of the navy blue, this weight, you know, and then everyone was scrambling to get it. And then, like, right, they've now sold out, but I've just found another company. So it was incredible how it was a really national effort also. There wasn't the competition that you would normally get. People were really working together. Um but yeah, no, it was, yeah. <laughs> Mammoth effort. Throughout the whole operation, they maintained professional standards. We had standards, you know. We felt it's no good giving somebody a free pair of scrubs if it falls apart. If you can't rely on it, it falls apart within minutes. So actually, we started doing quality control. And we used it as a learning opportunity because I teach sewing classes. I was doing little videos for people on how to finish the seams or how to do the tricky bits or... And giving people individual feedback, saying, you know, that was great, but next time can you do it like that? And so that was really good too. We all kind of naturally found our role. You know, some people liked doing the press and then other people liked doing the organising. Some people liked being in charge of the fabric buying. And so we all very quickly, because we needed to, kind of went, we're not going to have meetings about this. We're just going to do what needs doing. And that was beautiful, actually. It was really good to see that it was all on merit. There's no like, but this is my job, or, you know, I've had this interview. We just worked it out between us, which I think the world should be run like that, frankly. It was really good. (laughs) These high working standards and relentless demand caused very long hours, sometimes up to 14 hours a day, seven days a week. Jenny was conscious that nobody was being paid, and it didn't always sit comfortably with her. There was a few of us in the organisational side that were very aware that we were once again asking women to work for free because our work never counts and we never get paid or we don't get paid enough and we're just expected to do this stuff because we know how to do it. And so we were very aware of that, that people weren't getting paid and they were giving up all their time and that we knew, you know, at some point we would just have to pull back and say we can't keep asking people to do this because they were doing it to the detriment of other stuff also. So even though it was giving people a value... It's also that, you know, we're asking you to do something major and you're not going to get any money for it. Whereas the men were doing the stuff that was making them get into the local papers, you know, the shiny stuff that, you know, as my friend calls them, show ponies, that do stuff for the, for the, for the public glory. So, yeah, we were very aware of that. On the other hand, you know, it was also amazing to see all these people come together, like I said. Because the women were working for free, they had one strict rule. Anyone could bail out at any time if it was getting too much. What we were very aware of, because we people were doing it for free, is that anyone could bail out at any time, that nobody felt that they had to do this, because there were so many of us sewing. Like I said, we had about 75 people, I think, at any, you know, most of the time, making stuff. So we could take the weight of people. We could just say, you know what, you take a week off, or you've done four this week, that's enough. So that was really good and because we were so mindful of the fact that people could burn out, you know, if they felt that they had to just keep producing stuff. So some people loved it and they just wanted to do more and more and more and other people went, actually, that was really hot work and now I need to go back to my family or I want to sit around and go to my allotment or whatever. So, But we had enough people to do that. 
Within two months, this whirlwind of activity began to wind down. National supply chains started moving again and the hospitals were no longer asking for help. And the women were ready to stop too. Not only were they exhausted, but they were broke. Lots of us had just realised we were in it for a slightly longer haul than expected, right? (laughs) Initially, I thought it would be about six weeks and then we'd all be fine again. So... It wasn't sustainable to keep doing that. Lots of us had to go back to our jobs and I had to go back to my job, you know, as in I had to start teaching sewing classes online because I wasn't earning any money. That's the other thing. Whilst we were doing this, we'd all stopped working. So, yeah, that's not something you can do for very long. While Jenny never intended to make the project political, it was hard to completely avoid it. You know, there was a reliance on people doing stuff for free, which meant that, you know them in them in in power just could just go well somebody else is sorting this out for us <laughs> so there was an element of actually no you sort this out because this isn't actually our job and we're not doing this for free and you know despite the long hours no pay and frustration at the political elite the women knew that what they were doing was vital work so it had to go on I mean, we all know the PPI was such a scandal. There was just no access to anything. You know, in fact, Duncan, who runs the, the sewing studio, he spent ages trying to figure out, because he has access to all this equipment. I mean, he has industrial sewing machines too, but he has this huge studio. Um, and his digital cutter, his laser cutter is, I don't know, it's about eight foot wide. And so he can cut anything on there. And he tried to design an all-in-one sort of plastic cover you know, that surgeons could use or what have you, because there just was none of that, you know, everything was missing. I think absolutely, we, you know, it's impossible to quantify. We, we would have helped save lives in a way because people would have got sick, you know, and this way they just didn't. But the benefits weren't just for the medical professionals. The women created something amazing for themselves too. I think it was just an incredible, if nothing else, it was a community builder as well. Because, like I said, some of the people said, it's lovely woman, Mandy, who she'd been working in the fashion industry, and she got quite quickly involved in helping develop the patterns, and it gave her the confidence and the context to say, actually, I want to leave my job and become a full-time pattern designer, and she doesn't. So we work together quite a lot, where I use her pants in my classes, etc., etc., and I do test sewing for her. So... Yeah, it was incredible. The contacts we've made have been absolutely invaluable. So if nothing else, out of all of that, that is still going, you know, and that just won't stop. So, and like I said, this WhatsApp group. So there was a WhatsApp group for the people that were sewing, but there was also one for the people organising everything. And that's still a real source of knowledge. You know, people say, oh, you know, I need to get this print, this fabric printed or, do you know, how where I can get 200 metres of this or does anyone want this somebody delivered five bin bags of fabric to my studio this morning through the group because she's coming out of the studio so yeah it's been incredible for that it's built friendships and I know that there's groups that are still meeting up and they're sewing on you know Tuesday mornings or going to the pub together or what have you so it's been for some people it was you know mentally speaking a lifesaver too because they it got them out of their isolation it gave them something to do um yeah, it was, it was incredibly powerful. Yeah. Although short-lived, the scrub hubs that sprung up around the country proved themselves vital in the fight against COVID. Despite this, they received no major news coverage and your average citizen probably remains ignorant of them today. Does this lack of public recognition bother Jenny? 
So we didn't do it for the glory. I know some people did stuff for the glory, but we really didn't. So it doesn't matter, actually. I mean, it's nice that it is remembered and it's nice for me to think about it again and to talk about it. But also, that's not what it was about. It was about helping out. So we did. You know, and I'll do it again in a heartbeat. If you are listening to this podcast between the 20th of June and 16th of July 2023, head over to the Mill in Walthamstow, East London to see our exhibition, Beyond Medicine, A Social History of Women and Pandemics. To our listeners from the future, you'll be able to visit the exhibition online at beyondmedicine.org.uk. You can also watch our short film on YouTube. There are links to both in the show notes. Join us next time for more stories of lockdown legends.